You know, I grew up with a a mother who was more than just a little cautious about the drugs that she allowed the doctors to put in her children's body. Uh, And this was especially true of substances that she was afraid would make us addicted. Uh, And on the list of banned substances was um, nitrous oxide. Nitrous, that thing that the dentist gives you that we used to call laughing gas. You know, as a young man, I was kind of offended that something that sounded so much fun was denied me. So when the time came, and I had at 18 years old to get my wisdom teeth out, I determined that I was every bit the grown-up who was able to handle the experience. So I asked my dentist to give me the gas. Well, when the day of my surgery arrived, I sat there in the dentist chair, and the nurse prepped me appropriately and placed this gentle little mask over my face. And she gave me careful instructions. She said, look, this is going to make you feel a little bit lightheaded. But the important thing is is that you breathe normally. Simple enough, right? But of course, if you've ever been the recipient of nitrous, you'll know that the the effect is almost instantaneous when you start to breathe in. And so as soon as I took that first breath, I'm I'm launched into free-floating space, right? Now, this is my first time, mind you, right? And with such mind-altering substance. And so what I do is what a natural person would do is I immediately discard what she told me. And I start doing this. As deeply as I possibly can. Now, that's where the illustration ends this morning because in the name of decorum, uh, what happens next is that I gave, I, I, the, the nitrous ended up making me nauseated. And that is not a story that you'll get me to tell from this pulpit. Now, the question though is why am I telling you this particular story? What we've been talking about the book of Romans <clears throat> as an antidote to ordinary Christianity. And what we said um, last week was that the just, justification arrives in our hearts through the instrument of faith. The faith of Abraham, it turns out, is the thing that delivers the goods to God's people from what he did on the cross. And so having established this fact, it's as if Paul wants us now to turn to the question of how to unpack the benefits of justification. In other words, he wants us to exult in what God has delivered to his people by faith because he knows that's the way in which we're going to deepen that faith. A number of years ago, I heard an, a, a minister use an illustration for what faith is like. And he said, look, when you go to the doctor or the dentist sometimes, they will set you up with a device to deliver either life-giving <clears throat> or perhaps pain-preventing substances to you while you're there in, under their care. For those who can't feed themselves, for instance, you get an intravenous needle, right? An IV that delivers the goods. Of course, at the dentist, I got my little mask over which I could function the same way. Well, theologians will tell you that it's vitally important to establish the fact that we do not believe that faith is a work that earns our salvation. Rather, faith is the instrument through which we receive the benefits of justification. And the distinction is vital to grasp. In other words, faith is a little bit like that IV. We've all got one. The question is, what is it hooked up to? We know that that IV in God's design is to bring us the benefits of our justification. So chapter 5 is Paul's way of saying, look, I want you to see and take joy in these wonderful things that are waiting those people who embrace Jesus by faith. Because there what you'll find is more incentive to lean on and to trust him. That's what the IV is. And so therefore, in order to unpack this, I want to look at that metaphor in three categories. First of all, what is it that's being received and delivered by faith? Why it works? And then how you'll know that it's working with that IV. Let's take that first point, what it is that faith delivers to us. Okay, 
This is what's coming through the mask or through the IV. In verses 1 and 2, Paul says that if you've been justified, your entire perspective on your life has changed. Everything in the past, everything in the present, and everything in the future. That's the outline of verses 1 and 2. Look at, first of all, the past. He says your past has now been resolved. Verse 1 says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, Notice what he's not saying. He's not saying that if we're justified, we have the peacefulness of God. 1970s, rock supergroup The Eagles wrote a song called A Peaceful, Easy Feeling, talking about how you feel when you're, I don't know, traveling through an open road or something. That's not what Paul is talking about. The grammar suggests that what he's referring to is that there has been a cessation of hostilities between God and between his people. That is, there is a war between God and me that is finally over because of our justification. Now look, you would think that that was good news for someone who had heard it, but I think so often in Southern Christianity, rarely does that land on our hearts with any sort of joy. And I think one of the reasons is, is because this idea that we were ever at war with God in the first place feels really archaic, or at least not super relevant. And so often when we presented with the case and what the Bible says about us, we get very adept at, you know, kind of spinning our condition to cast ourselves in the best light. We're like, well, I mean, come on. I mean, I'm not perfect or anything, but it's not like I hate God. I mean, I'm not at war with him. That's overstating it. Well, here's the problem. That's exactly how the Bible puts it. In chapter 1, verse 18, Paul began the whole journey with saying, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Paul is trying to show all of us that God's war with sin includes turning sinners over to the fruits of their sin. This is a war that's on. But of course, Jesus took took our place on the cross, and so there's been a cessation of hostilities, a permanent ceasefire. The Father objectively is no longer our enemy, but now he's our friend. We've switched over to the winning side. We're now in God's favor. But here's the problem. For, For for educated Oxfordians, like ourselves. Oftentimes we hear thoughts like that. We're like, please, here we go again. You know, are we still in that spot where we're saying, that offensive spot, where we're saying that Jesus died on the cross to end a war between us and God? In other words, people are like, are we done with a Christianity, you know, that has to resort to those kind of guilt tactics in order to get converts or something? But I've always found that objection a little curious. Because the, the knowledge that the war is over between us and Christianity, does, um, why would that strike guilt in us? Imagine for a moment, ladies, that you and your husband are working very hard to get out of debt. You've really got, you're hoping to get a new loan for your house. And so you work at it for years. Finally, you pay off what you thought was your last credit card, only to discover that you had one more that you totally forgot you had and had charged up thousands of dollars onto. Well, in the midst of your abject misery, you get a call from a friend who informs you that a long-lost aunt has passed away and has left you a great sum of money, which is perfectly suited to pay off the last of your debt and even give you a solid down payment for that new house that you want. Think about how ridiculous it would be to say to that person over the phone, come on, don't even tell me about that. You know what? All of that inheritance makes me think about was how dumb I was to get get into that much debt in the first place. I don't even want to hear about that. You'd think someone had missed something, wouldn't you? That's crazy. (laughs) 
But the truth is we live in a generation who so doesn't want to talk about sin. But in our refusal to talk about the problem, we've lost the elation that could come from finding out that Jesus paid it all. The war is over. God and I now are inextricably linked together from now on. So my past is resolved. Secondly, though, Paul says that justification has also resolved my present. How? By giving us access into what we were created to be. Look at verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. That little phrase in which we stand is actually a pretty good translation of the Greek there, which actually literally means to introduce or to bring near. Think of it along these terms. When was the last time someone asked you, or maybe you asked someone else, are are you in good standing with so-and-so? What does someone mean when they ask you that question? They want to know, what is your status with them? What kind of relationship do you presently enjoy with that person, right? You know, inevitably, when young couples get together, they have to pass through this, 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 this ritual of a very oftentimes awkward conversation where they try to figure out what the nature of this relationship actually is. We use this phrase that we're going to define the relationship. And it's vital, right? Because you don't know what to expect out of this person that you're seeing without it. I used to, when I was in campus ministry, use the illustration all the time of, of what our grandparents' generation would say when a young suitor would come over to court his daughter. He would sit the young man down and he would say, so young man, tell me exactly what are the intentions you have with my daughter? Now, perversely, we have sexualized that question. I don't think that's anything what our grandparents were thinking. What they meant was, tell me how I can come alongside my daughter and help her make sense of your presence here. What are you thinking in being here? Are you here just to be her friend or do you hope for something more? What do you think is the nature of your relationship with her? Okay, what's the point? Paul is simply saying that if you were to ask God to define the relationship between him and us, he would use one word, grace. That's the grace. That's the standing that we have now. That is our de- the de- definition of our relationship. It's the substance of how we're doing. These are the categories that we use when we think about God's presence in our lives. Grace. And the more you think about it, the more profound this gets. Because the only reason that I can say that God and I are in good stead right now is because of something he initiated. Something he has done. Completely outside of any meaningful contribution on my part. Other than my sin. Hey, hold that thought for a second. Okay, so that's our past and our present. What about our future? Look at verse 2, end of it. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Justification, it turns out, has also secured our future in that now we finally have something to look forward to. I thought a lot about this, and this this makes a good illustration. Have you ever thought about the fact that if you know that something is temporary, it kind of ruins the enjoyment of it? Okay, spring break is over, sadly, which is part of the illustration. Let's imagine that the day before you've got to come home, you're sitting on a beach. You're in absolute bliss, perfectly relaxed, until it occurs to you, i got to go home tomorrow. And all of a sudden, you start to think about packing, which is miserable. You start to think about the long trip home, which is a drag. You start to think about the stack of work that's piled up on your desk, and you're miserable about it. Isn't it interesting 
that the anticipation of something ending can ruin the joy that you're trying to experience while you've got it. All right, hold that thought. Because Paul is saying our rejoicing is in this. The grace that we have come to experience now is going to go on and on and on and on. It'll never end. That's why we sing that hymn. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deeply I'll drink above. Because there to an ocean fullness his mercy doth expand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. What that means then is, is if justification has rescued my future, it has also rescued every earthly joy I have now. I can enjoy it now because I know it doesn't have to end. I don't have to look at it and say that this is going to be a terminal point. We walk out of church, well, tomorrow it's back to the real world. Really? Well, what is this, first of all? But if what we're saying here is true, it means that this is the reality that my earthly joys will never stop moving on. Okay, so that's what faith delivers. That's what's coming in through the IV or through the little mask. Secondly, let's look at why that works. Why does justification work? And verses 6 through 10 are so beautiful, and I want to commend them to you for further study as best as I can. Because what you have here is Paul turning into Paul the pastor. Because he knows that there's going to be a question that just about every Christian has asked since they became a Christian, and it's simply this. How can I have assurance of any of this? Like, how can I know that the grace that's being talked about really applies to me? What kind of assurance can I have here? And so what Paul does is he begins to unpack this. Verse 8 is very well known, is it not? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What's Paul doing? He's trying to get you to think about it in these terms. He says, look, stop for a second. When I begin to feel doubt for my salvation, he says, stop and think about this for a second. Because if God has already done the spectacularly difficult thing of repairing the broken relationship between you and himself, does it not then follow that he will continue to do the comparatively easy thing by securing your salvation for the future. You see the logic? Paul says, if God has reckoned us while we were enemies, how much more is he going to save us now that we're friends? Do you see the point? This is what verse 9 means when he says, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. There's that wrath of God again from 118. That fearful announcement that sin has actually left us very much on God's bad side. But Paul's logic is saying, look, if God worked in you while you were raging against him in rebellion, then why am I so quick to assume that he's walked away from me when sin pops up in my life and I notice it, even as a Christian? When, it, when in actuality, that makes the problem even that much worse. Paul is saying it is so often in the midst of our struggles with assurance of salvation to get into what we would call assurance misdirection. Because what happens is we start to rethink our salvation in terms that he would never live to. Would never live to. This is why it's so important. Why do we define sin as strongly as we did? Some of you are miserable. Like, it's been a depressing few weeks to go through Romans 1 and 2 and 3. Blah. And it was. It was miserable to go through all that. But don't you see now... <laughs> Paul is trying to remove doubt from our salvation by removing us any inkling of an impression that we had something to do with it. 
And since it, if I think that it was somehow on my shoulders to make myself a Christian, then it only stands to follow that I can un-Christian myself. And if that's the case, then I've got no hope. I'm choosing in and out of it all the time. But if I'm actually really as helpless as Paul says, then I certainly wouldn't be worried about whether or not I'm in good relationship with God or has somehow done something unless he has done something to awaken my heart to that fact. Does this make sense? I, I was in campus ministry for so long, and I have students all the time who, for whom we would, we would talk about assurance of salvation. They would come to my office and sit and speak and be like, I, I, I don't feel like I'm there. I, I'm struggling. How do I know? How do I know? And what I would oftentimes say is like, look, I, I, don't, I can't give you objective assurance for yourself from me to you. But I can tell you this. You wouldn't be having those thoughts if God was not at work. Does that mean objectively that everything's secure? Not necessarily, but it objectively does mean that God's not done with you yet. And that's encouraging. And almost always what happened is the reason why I'm in panic about my assurance is because I, t- because I started taking my sin too lightly. Somewhere along the way, I reduced my sin to something that was milder than the reality. And so being a Christian was still on their shoulders. And so Paul is trying to use this logic of saying, this is how justification works. Once you get this into your life, it's life-changing in the way you perceive everything. Which brings me to the last point. And that is this question about, okay, so, so how do I know that I've received it? What example do I have of that? Well, I think this is worth camping out on. Because I believe that Paul believes that the normal Christian life, if there be such a thing, is one of living as if you are assured of your salvation. He would want us to be confident in what we have in Christ. He doesn't want us vacillating all the time in doubt for very good reasons. And so in verses 5 and verse 11, he gives us two tests, one subjective and one objective, where he says, root your confidence in these things because this will help you see it and experience it. Let's take that first one, the subjective test. In verses 3 through 5, Paul says there is a progression that begins in our suffering, but that it ends in hope. And the reason why that hope isn't something that we need to be embarrassed about is, look what it says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. All right, that was big. Those of you who've been paying attention will notice that this is the first time Paul has talked about the Holy Spirit in the entire book of Romans. First time, right here. And what he's saying is, it is the Spirit's role to come into your life and to satisfy you with the doctrine of justification. That's what the Spirit is doing. There's a time in which I can look. It's not all the time, but I can look back in which the knowledge that God had justified you actually made you happy. You thought to yourself, you know what? People ought to know this. This is kind of a big deal. (laughs) Mind you, it's not a constant sensation of Christians, for certain. It's one of those things that comes and goes. That's why I'm saying it's subjective. But what you have to think of ourselves as is as if we're like cups with big holes in it. It's almost exactly how Paul refers to us. Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, uh, 4, 7, Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. You remember this? To show the surpassing power that belongs to God and not to us. In other words, the Holy Spirit is constantly trying to tell you how much God has done to show you his love. Constantly trying to, that's what it means, shed abroad in our hearts. 
But here's the crazy thing. It's never enough. It's never enough. The reason is because we've sprung leaks. And I realized that there was a time in my life where I just, I, I didn't like this. Why would God do that? Why wouldn't God simply snap his fingers and make me perfectly, perfectly satisfied in him right out of the gate? <laughs> but I love the fact that Paul answers that question too at the end of, of, of the St. Corinthians passage, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I love that. He says, because if he did that, you would take credit for it. You're still addicted to yourself. And so what God is trying to do is to wean us away from our independence by making us dependent. Christians are not perfect. They're simply humble and repentant, which is what God was looking for in the first place. Okay, so that's a subjective test. And unfortunately, there's lots of people who try to build their entire Christian life on those subjective feelings, and it is a fast way to burn out. A fast way to burn out, because we're not built that way. And that's why what Paul also recognizes that we need in verse 11 is something objective. And I love this. Look what he says. He says, we rejoice in God through Jesus, by whom we have received reconciliation reconciliation. There's a document that's been signed. There's an official stamp that's been put on the relationship between God and me. And it's no longer one of enmity, war. It's now one of peace. God and I have peace with one another. And what this is saying is, is once that reconciliation has taken root in your life, you begin to process your life in an entirely different way. I was reading one uh, commentator who went through five different effects that justification will have on someone in the way they apprehend the world. He says, the first thing that it'll do for you is it'll change the way you look at suffering. Verse 3 looks and says, we can now rejoice in our sufferings. That's not like a Christian masochism, by the way. That's a sense of saying, my sufferings, I don't think about my sufferings the way I used to. In the old days when I would suffer, it felt like I was being punished. We even talk this way, don't we? What did I do to deserve this? I don't know what I did to God, but he's mad at me now. We, a Christian doesn't talk that way. A Christian who is reconciled says, I don't know what the purpose of this suffering is. It cannot be that God doesn't love me. It can't be that. What it must be is that God is a very good surgeon, and he's operating on some cancer inside of me that will kill me if it wasn't there. Secondly, though, he also says that justification comes and brings us healing for our past. Paul understands that like our past events always shape us. They're trying to shape us. We look back at those events and we think to ourselves, I don't know what the purpose of that was. And we say things like, my life just stinks. But a Christian who's been reconciled to God looks back and says, no, 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 no. That's not what was happening. That's not what those events meant in my past. Actually, I see what God was doing was weaving a tapestry. He was coming and doing something. He was bringing me to a place. It heals our past. <laughs> Thirdly, the third thing that reconciliation will do is it'll help you the next time you discover a new character flaw. Discover like you were having to search for it or something like that. <laughs> Think about it. Whenever there's a new fearfulness or a new sort of brilliant lack of self-control that comes up inside your own heart, the discovery of it doesn't make you doubt God's love if we understand our being reconciled. Actually, quite the opposite. It makes us feel closer to him. Why? Because grace becomes more precious in my sight the more I know that I need that grace. 
In the very weirdest way, the old theologian passed away last year, J.I. Packer used to say, growth in grace is actually growth downward. Our sin begins to become larger and larger. But guess what happens to the grace of Jesus? It gets greater also. That's the pattern. Fourthly, he says it also changes. Reconciliation changes what happens the next time you blow it big time. You know what happens where all of a sudden you wake up and you're like, I cannot believe I did what I just did, which is kind of a weird way of talking, isn't it? Why did I do what I just did? Who am I talking to right now? Myself. But when you blow it big time, in the old days, our conscience oftentimes looks at us and says things like, good grief. How in the world could God ever love you? Oh, you call yourself a Christian after that? That's a voice of our conscience speaking to us. And what happens is before you're reconciled, you make a lot of excuses. I mean, Lord, you don't understand. I was under a lot of pressure. That was a rough time in my life. Or, you know, look, God, I'm sorry. I was just having a bad day. I felt entitled. Nope. When all of a sudden something gross comes up out of my life, what a reconciled person says is, you know what? Even if I had not done this thing, that would not have made me more acceptable in his sight. Because Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood, his blood can cover a thousand worlds filled with a thousand people a thousand times worse than I am. Finally, it means that we learn to face criticism. I really like this one because it kind of applies to where we are right now. The world is awful because we don't know how to stop the cycle of anger and hate. When I receive hate, if I return that hate in kind, all I do is reproduce it in the next person. Somebody comes up to me and says, they notice a character flaw in me. They get confronted on something. And we react to them like, who are you to say to me? Or we pivot, right? Well, I mean, there's other people who do it just as bad as I do. But what happens to a Christian is, someone who's reconciled is, when someone offers a critique of their hearts, they actually know how to take it properly. They know how to take it the way in which C.H. Uh, Spurgeon, the great London British pastor, used to. Standing outside of his church, shaking people's hands on the way out. As one elderly lady walks up to him and says, Mr. Spurgeon, I just want you to know that I think that you are the most arrogant, conceited individual I've ever met, and I wanted to be the one that told you. And off she marches. All eyes on Spurgeon. Spurgeon leans over to the elder next to him and is like, she doesn't know the half of it. Now, here's the funny thing. Don't you want to hang out with a guy like Spurgeon? Why? Because that neutralizes the hatred that's the only way to solve it. You can't tell people to stop hating people unless someone is willing to take it, absorb it, and discharge it. And guess what? Only reconciliation with God does that. That's the only hope. We could go on, I'm sure. Um, look, one last thought. Um, about a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, I had a, I had a minor medical procedure which was going to require me to be put to sleep for the first time ever. Never been put to sleep for any kind of surgery. Um, but everybody kept telling me, they were like, look, it's going to feel like no time passes between when you go to sleep and when you wake up. It's totally weird. So as I laid there on, that, uh, on, the, on, the, uh, on the bed and the lady put the, uh, put the IV inside my arm, she explained to me, she's like, look, I'm going to put this medicine inside you and uh, you know, you're going to start to drift off. And I was like, all right. So she got this IV in and all of a sudden I start to feel this, this warm sensation going up my shoulder and they're kind of moving across my chest. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, I wonder if that's what they're talking about. And then I woke up. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. It was amazing. I thought about that because 
justification and all of its benefits, that's what's coming through the IV. That's what we're breathing through this mask in this hospital that is our relationship to Christ. But there's a sweetness that comes from it because it's at that place where we're finally learning to rest. So here's what I'm hoping. What I'm hoping is, is that when we gather together for worship, when we come to church, that the point of that is to have that experience where we begin to see the sweetness of the Spirit who is bearing witness with our hearts and shedding God's love abroad in us subjectively, but reminding me of this objective reconciliation I have in Christ, that there'll be a moment where you say to yourself, wait a minute, I wonder if that's what they're talking about. Because when we do, it begins to shape us and change us. Let's hope that happens. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, that's only going to happen if your Spirit does it. So, Holy Spirit, we know that we can ask for you. Lord Jesus, you said that if we, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so, as we sing this final song, would you let it be a prayer from us to you that you indeed would make us secure? Father, that you would make us to know that we, are, we have been bought and we are secure in you. Father, that assured life is one we think you want us to live in, and so you have to lead us into it. Would you do that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.